God's Word. I would like for you to have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 24, and we'll be taking our, our comments from there today. Luke uh, chapter 24. Luke 24 has to do with Jesus on earth after his resurrection. He is now walking around on the resurrection day. And he's going to encounter two disciples walking from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. Emmaus is about seven miles out of Jerusalem. Well, let's first stop and consider just how critical this topic is the resurrection of our Lord, the risen Savior, the risen uh, Savior. In 1 Peter 1, I guess Peter sums it up for us as well as anyone. 1 Peter 1 in verse 3, 1 Peter 1, 3, Peter says, Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is based on one single event, and that is the resurrection. Our hope is based on one single person, and that is the risen Savior. And so let's notice a few thoughts together from Luke chapter 24. It'll be verses 13 to 43. And then these words we will keep in mind as we move through these verses. The word interpretation from verses 13 through 27. The word interpretation verses 13 to 27. And then the word recognition verses 28 through 32. Word recognition. And then the word celebration from verses 33 to 35 celebration. And then finally the word demonstration, verses 36 to 43. And so let's keep these words in mind and let's get started here. Let's think about interpretation. Interpretation. Because Jesus needs to interpret some things. He needs to explain some things to these men walking on this road. Notice in verses 13 to 15 that Jesus will approach these men. He himself, you'll see that in your Bible, verse 15. Jesus himself approaches these two men. He approaches these two men. And he, he begins a conversation uh, with them. Notice from verses 16 to 24 what Jesus is going to do. He's going to take some time to listen to these men. I want you to notice how Jesus operates here. Okay? He approaches these men. But then he's going to take considerable time to listen to them. Okay? Notice in verse 17, he's going to approach them. And he's going to ask them a question. He's going to say, what is this conversation that you are having among yourselves? Okay. And then one of them, Cleopas, he, well, if you'll notice in verse 17, both of the men just stand there and they look sad. They can't believe that Jesus would ask such a question. And then Cleopas is going to come back with this question to Jesus. He said, are you only a visitor to, to Jerusalem and you don't know the things that have happened these, these last few days? And then Jesus has come back in verse 19 with another question, what things? What things? And then they unload. Then they unload. They give Jesus a bunch of 
information. He patiently listens to them. They talk about Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was mighty in deed and word. And he was a prophet indeed uh, before God and, and all the people. This man, the, our own chief priest, they took and, and they, they made him suffer and they, they killed him. They, they crucified him. And we had hoped that this man was uh, the one to redeem Israel. You see, they had a, a still a misconception about the kingdom of God. They thought that the kingdom should just overthrow Rome. Okay, Jesus was going to set up a, a spiritual kingdom. And then they went on to say, you know, this is the third day since all this had happened. And then there's this report of the women. The women got early to, to the tomb on, uh, early this morning on the first day of the week. Uh, they got there early and they did not find his body. And then they talked of an appearance of angels who also said Jesus uh, had risen. And then uh, there are other reports and, and some of our own have gone there and, and have confirmed that the body of Jesus is not there. Okay. These men are quite confused and so they need some explaining. Okay. They have a lot of facts. Okay. There's a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of questions. And so Jesus needs to interpret to them uh, some matters. And so verses 13 to 15, Jesus approaches these men from verses 16 to 24, you'll see Jesus patiently listens to them. And then in verses 25 to 27, Jesus will teach them. Jesus will teach them. You notice that in verses 25 to 27. We'll notice that closely here in just a minute. But I want us to get this in mind. Get this in mind. Only Jesus can make sense of life. Let's bear this in mind. These men, their, their, their dreams are shattered. Their hopes have gone down the drain. Okay. They thought Jesus would, would overthrow all the oppression that they were experiencing as spiritual men. And now he has been crucified. What gives with that? Okay. Only Jesus can make sense of, of life. He's the only one qualified to do that. We need to be aware of this and we need to make sure that we properly uh, clear our minds about this, this kind of thing. Now, I'm not against romance. I'm not against marriage. Okay. The good Lord willing, at the end of this month, my wife and I will celebrate 35 years. Okay. I'm not against romance and marriage. I taught Kelly all she knows about romance. But I get a little bit perturbed when I hear a romantic statement like this. Some, some fellow will look into the eyes of his beloved and he will say, when I look into your eyes, I find my reason to live. When I look into your eyes, I, I, find, my, I find the purpose of what it's all about. Give me a piece of chocolate cake. Give, Give me a break. Philippians 1.21, the Apostle Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Only Jesus can make sense of life. Now notice another thing in particular here before we leave this section. Verses 25 to 27, Jesus teaches. Let's notice how he teaches. 
verses 25 to 27, Jesus teaches these men. Here is a Bible class, by the way. Okay? Here is Jesus teaching two men. Here's a great Bible class. Notice, first of all, verse 25, he gives them a tender rebuke. Okay? Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Okay? He gives them a tender rebuke. In other words, what is taking you so long to believe what the prophets have said? What's taking you so long? Why does it take you so long to come to belief? A similar statement is made between Jesus and Philip over in John 14, verse 8, where Philip comes to Jesus and says, uh, Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father. And Jesus said to Philip, Philip, I've been with you all this time, and you're, you're saying, show us the Father. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And so you can just hear a little bit of frustration on the lips of Jesus because it should not take all the time in the world to come to belief. You know, belief is natural. Unbelief is unnatural. We're made in the image of God. Okay. We're made to believe and to come to know the Lord. So he starts out his teaching with a tender rebuke. And then the second part of his teaching is that he points them to the cross. Notice verse 26 of Luke 24. He points them to the cross. He said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then to enter into his glory? Notice the words suffer and glory together. That ought to give us some hope. That ought to give us some hope. Jesus suffered for us. It was necessary that he suffered for us. Okay? There's no other way of receiving forgiveness. There's no other way of finding what life is all about other than the suffering of Jesus on the cross. He must suffer. The cross was not forced upon God. The cross was not forced upon God. The cross was not some sort of emergency measure. No, the cross was in the very plan of God all along because we needed Jesus to die for our sins. God is so holy, we are sinful. There had to be a price paid for sin. There's only one price that could be paid for sin and that was with the Son of God and his, and his blood. So he points them to the cross. And then notice the third part of his teaching is, it says he began with the scriptures and he brought them along. Okay. He began with Moses and the prophets. And there's a lot said with Moses and the prophets about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe Jesus talked to them about about himself being the Lamb of God. You know how Moses, God through Moses, instituted the Passover supper way back in the book of Exodus. And that supper keyed in on a lamb without spot and without blemish. You know, Jesus is pointed out to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Perhaps Jesus talked to them about the Lamb of God. Okay. Perhaps he mentioned Isaiah 53, verse 5, where it says that Jesus is wounded uh, for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and with his stripes we are healed. Perhaps Jesus, like he did in Matthew 12, 39 and 40, perhaps he mentioned the prophet Jonah, because in Matthew 12, 39, they asked for a sign from Jesus. He said, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as, 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Definitely pointing to his resurrection. But nonetheless, notice for us here, when we think about interpretation, notice that these men needed some explaining. They were bewildered. They were confused. Much like a lot of us. Much like most of the world. Okay. Notice that only Jesus can make sense of life. And notice how Jesus carefully brought them to the scriptures. Interpretation. Now the second part of our message this morning will be on recognition. Verses 28 through 32, Luke 24. Recognition. Recognition. So there Jesus is on this road to Emmaus. He's walking with these two disciples. And it's getting to be the end of the day. And so they're going to invite him to stay. To have a meal with them, even stay that night. And after they urged him, he stayed. Okay. And then they had supper. And Jesus took the bread and he rendered thanks to God as we ought to do as we eat any kind of meal. This is just a regular meal that night. And so they had supper. And then, whereas beforehand they had not been allowed to, to recognize who Jesus really was, then Jesus allowed them to recognize who he was. And then Jesus vanishes. He vanishes. And then they have this question, verse 32. This question. Did our hearts not burn within us while he opened up the scriptures to us. Now let's do some thinking about this. First of all, how is it that we recognize Jesus today? How is it that we recognize Jesus today? Okay. Now this is, this that we're reading in Luke 24, these are some mysterious times. These are some marvelous times. This is a tremendous event. This is the greatest event. This is the day of Jesus' resurrection. Okay. But for us today, how do we recognize Jesus? In other words, how can we know that we are with him and he is with us? Well, John helps us with this. John helps us with this. If you jump over to John chapter 14 for just a minute, John 14, and read with me uh, verse 23. John 14 and verse 23. The Lord Jesus himself answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So loving the Lord and keeping his word is how we come to recognize Jesus. Notice again in John 15 in verse 10. John 15 verse 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept the father's commandments and abide in his love. If we want to be able to recognize the Lord today, we will love Him and abide in His Word. We will, we will notice His Word. We will learn His Word. We will keep His Word. We will submit to His Word. That's how we come to recognize uh, Jesus. Another thought before we leave this section, thinking about recognition here. The Lord allowed these men to recognize Him there at supper. And the Lord allows us to recognize Him today ourselves. Let's think about this. What causes one's heart to burn for the Lord? 
These men said in verse 32, did our hearts not burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures? Well, what causes our heart to burn for the Lord today? Okay, three quick words, scripture, search, and satisfaction. It's all about the scriptures, of course. As Jesus opened the scriptures to them, then their heart burned within, within them. Okay. We know the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We're not surprised to read that the scriptures, when sincerely approached, when the scriptures come into our hearts, our heart's going to burn for the Lord. But there's got to be a search. Okay. It just doesn't happen. It may not happen for you today. Or perhaps your heart is not where it needs to be. If, if our heart is not where it needs to be, the scriptures are not going to burn within us. Okay. It has to be a search. It has to be a search. Okay. Like we read about in Acts 17, 11, and 12 concerning the Bereans, how that they, when they heard the word, they received it with all readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily. There's got to be a search. Okay. That search must come from a good and honest heart. Okay. There must be a thirst and a hunger. There must be prayer associated with it. It must be an all-out, relentless search for the truth. Okay. When we approach scriptures that way, then there will burn. It must be from a good and honest heart. It, it must be filled with expectations. Okay. We don't come to the scriptures as some sort of bystander or as a judge or as, as a critic okay. Okay. or an analyzer. We, we don't come to scriptures that way. We come with a thirst for wanting to be right with God. Okay. And we, we come expecting to be blessed. And you put all that together, the prayer and the expectations, the hunger and, and the thirst and the relentless search for the truth, then the scriptures will burn within your heart. Whether you're listening to them in some manner from somebody else or whether you're opening them up before yourselves. So it's what the, this, our hearts will burn for the Lord if the scriptures are there and there's a search for the scriptures and when we're satisfied with the scriptures. A lot of people want, they want jokes and they want, they want stories and, and they want loudness, they want screaming, they want some kind of theatrical uh, production, they want pictures, they want color, they want all of this, but your hearts won't burn for the Lord until you're satisfied with the scriptures. I just, just, just open it up to me. Just give it to me. How many times I have sat in a pew, listened to a speaker, and, and I squirmed. I squirmed. Because he wouldn't give me the scriptures. Okay? He's talking this and that, he's this and that, and this and that, and finally at the end he gives a couple of scriptures to contemplate. He didn't give me the scriptures. My heart was burning for the scriptures. Give it to me. Dummy. And so we think about recognition. If the scriptures are burning within us, we will recognize exactly who the Lord is and who he wants us to be. Our third word this morning, verses 33 to 35, celebration. When these men recognized Jesus, 
they arose. They went to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, they found the 11 there. The apostles, the apostles minus Judas, right? They found the 11 there. And then they discussed, you see that? They discussed verses 33 to 35. Now, here's what we take from this. Look at how anxious they were to share their joy. Okay. Look how anxious they are to share their joy. They arose. Well, if you look at verse 29, what does it say about the day? It says the day is far spent. You know what that means. It's late. It's dark. Okay. And how far are they from Jerusalem to Emmaus? Seven miles. Seven miles. Now you don't just go hop in your SUV and drive seven miles in those days. If you'll notice in reading, they are walking. And so here, late at night at dark, because of their joy, because they're anxious to share this with somebody, then they strike back out and they walk those seven miles back to Jerusalem. I would guess that part of that walking was running. Look how anxious they are to share the good news. They couldn't keep it to themselves. Someone has said that the gospel is not truly ours until we have shared it with somebody else. That's probably true. They just could not keep it to themselves. Notice what they found when they got there. They found fellowship and friendship, which is the same thing, basically, friendship. The apostles also had been learning gradually, but certainly, about the resurrection of Jesus, even that, that Jesus had appeared to Peter himself, and Peter was telling them all about it. And so they had, they had a lot to talk about. Okay. Look at the friendship there. Now, I'd like for us to consider this rather seriously. Okay. Someone has said that friendship, when you, when you bore it right down, friendship is the ability to share a common memory. Friendship is the ability to share a common memory. You can become friends with, with someone real fast if you have a common memory. For example, do you remember when gas was 75 cents a gallon? I do. Third grade, but I do remember that. Yeah. Now, I could strike up a conversation with somebody just on the price of gas, and we'd be friends real fast. You see, it all starts with that question, do you remember when? Now, automatically, as the two groups get together here, the disciples that were, on, that were in Emmaus, and they come back to Jerusalem, they find the 11, automatically, they have something in common, and that's the Lord Jesus and, and, what, and the power that he's working. And we have that in common, too. Peter calls it in 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1, verse 1, the light, precious faith. The like precious faith. Jude in verse 3 calls it a common salvation. Paul, as he addresses Titus, Titus 1 verse 4, he says, I'm writing this to my true child after a common faith. It's a common salvation. It's a common faith. It's a like precious faith. And we're automatically friends. We are automatically friends. If we have in common the precious blood of Jesus, 
we're automatically friends. If we have in common the faith in the Lord Jesus and submission to his will, we are automatically friends. That's friendship. That is, that is fellowship. And that's what they find in Jerusalem. You see, a lot to celebrate. Celebration. They're celebrating the fact that could it very well be that the Lord is risen from the dead? And it's hard to believe. They, they, they're in a fog of wonderment. They, they, they're almost there. They're still not quite sure. But boy, if this is true, this changes everything. Celebration. And they're also able to celebrate their fellowship uh, together. And then, finally, the word demonstration. Demonstration. Verses 43, 36 to 43. 36 to 43. And so, you know, earlier, Jesus had just vanished. He was just having fun, wasn't he? <laughs> He's just having a good time. I'm resurrected from the dead. He can just... He can just be amongst people and then vanish. And now all of a sudden, in the midst of this group in Jerusalem, he reappears right in the middle, right in the midst of them. You see that? Verse 36 or so. Right in the midst of them. So he reappears. And then they are frightened. And this is very important. They're frightened. And then he questions them, why are you doubting? And then he gives them proof. Let's think about that idea of being frightened. Okay. This shows that they were not really deep down expecting that Jesus would rise from the dead. Okay. And so the idea that somehow that the disciples or apostles fabricated this story to try to make Jesus look more than he was is absolutely absurd because they weren't expecting it themselves. When Jesus appeared to them, they were frightened. They thought he was a ghost. He was a spirit. But there he was. There he was. And again, he gives them a tender rebuke. He says, why are you troubled? Why are you doubting? They should not have been. He had talked about this plenty of times. He had showed his power in a multitude of ways. They should not have been frightened. Okay. But they were. One thing we take from this is that evidence should dispel fear. Where there's evidence, fear should go away. Is there any evidence that God will take care of us? Is there any evidence at all of God's power? Then our fear should be taken away. Okay. But notice here that Jesus will counter all that's going on in their hearts with just a scientific Test. Proof. Okay. He says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. So, similar to the test he gave to Thomas over in John uh, 20. Look at my hands. Look at the prints. Look at the nail marks. Look at my hands. And then he said this. He said, touch me. Touch me and see. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a phantom. I'm not a vision. I'm not... You know, isn't it wonderful that our faith and our hope is, is not based on, on some fantasy? Our, our hope and our faith is not based on, on the whims of some kind of fanatical uh, person. 
Our hope is not based on the dreams of some sort of disordered mind, but rather this is, this is actual historical fact. It's not fantasy, it's fact. This is just the way history developed. This was the way it actually happened. Okay. Our faith, our hope is based on a single event, and this is it. And the Lord is showing us the evidence. You might sum up verses 36 to 43 with these three, three words. When Jesus reappears to them, he says, peace, peace unto you. And then with them, there was panic. So peace and then panic. But then to take away that panic, he gives them proof, absolute verifiable proof. So go back to peace. And what are you experiencing today? Jesus reaffirms, speaks again about why He came in the first place, so that we may have peace. Peace be to you. We can have that peace with the Lord. The resurrection means so much to the foundation of our lives. It means all there is to the salvation of our souls. We must have faith, but a faith that obeys. And part of that obedience as one comes to Jesus is to turn from sin and be baptized into Christ in water into Christ for forgiveness. Notice how the resurrection is, is um, a big part. The resurrection of Jesus is a big part of this obedience. Notice Paul's words in Romans 6, 3 and 4. He says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Coming out of that water, we can enjoy a newness of life. Just like when Jesus came forth from the dead, there He was, alive again. There in verses 36 to 43, Jesus even asked for some food. Do, do you have, some translations say honeycomb, do you have any fish, do you have any honeycomb, maybe it was a little bit of both, and he sat there and he ate right before them. There was no doubt that he was dead. There's no doubt that he's alive again. And so we can come forth from our sins and have a newness of life. The risen Savior. If we are subject to the Lord's calling, if we are, if we are, if we are apart from him, then we can do something about that uh, today. We can come in simple, humble obedience. We can be immersed in water, belief in Jesus, belief in His blood, belief in His resurrection. We can, we can submit to Him. We can come out of that water forgiven of our sins. I know it sounds simple, almost too simple to be, to be true, but it is this way. This is the way it is. We can live a life for Him, and because He was raised from the dead, we can have a tremendous Tremendous, amazing hope 
of heaven above. Will you come this morning, right now, as we stand, as we sing?